Hello everybody and welcome to Nintendo Week for the end of week of July 31st through August 10th. I'm your host, Colin McIsaac, and I'm as always joined by Alex Plant. Look me up in the dictionary. And Ben Lemoreau. I'm more of an encyclopedia guy. <laughs> if, if you're sitting there thinking, hold on a second, those dates do not make a week, then you are absolutely right, but we did that funky thing the last few episodes with the delayed news bit, so now we're getting caught up, we're getting back on track. Because of that, this week is as busy as ever for our news segment. Uh, we're going to start out reviewing Nintendo's recent financial report, which had good news, but if that's numbers and cents are a little too boring for you, you can skip ahead a few minutes and we'll be talking about Rare, Smash Bros, Splatoon... A uh, bunch of other fun stuff that had some news this week. Uh, after the break, if we have time after the huge news segment, then we'll be taking some listener questions. We'll be talking about sort of what games we've been playing recently, but uh, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. By the end of the podcast, you'll know if we if we ended up doing that. We don't even know. <laughs> Ooh, spooky. It's a secret to everyone. So let's jump in. Nintendo released its investor report for the first quarter of the 2015 fiscal year, which means April 1st through June 30th. The great news for Nintendo is that they have started the year off profitable. For the first quarter, Nintendo reported a positive profit of $67 million. So here's some highlights just from that first quarter and some Nintendo forecasts for the future. The 3DS sold 1 million units last quarter. That brings the lifetime sales to 53.07 million. Wii U sold under half a million units last quarter, but lifetime sales have finally eclipsed 10 million, which is about half of GameCube's lifetime sales. Splatoon has now sold 1.6 million copies since launch, making it the best-selling Wii U game that doesn't feature Mario. Nintendo sold 4.2 million Amiibo figurines last quarter, bringing the lifetime total to 14.7 million. And Nintendo expects to sell 7.6 million 3DS units and 3.4 million Wii U units this year. So I think Splatoon selling 1.6 million is really pretty impressive for a brand new IP from Nintendo. And especially on Wii U, you know, a, a platform that has such a small user base. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it speaks, I think, partially just to what a fun, innovative, uh, and and community-friendly kind of game Splatoon is. You know, it's really encouraging of, of friends to get their friends involved, uh, to get their internet friends involved, going online, playing matches, uh, and talking about just what a fun new game it is. But it also, I think, speaks to how well they can market a game when they actually try to market a game. Yeah, absolutely. You know, more than any other game in recent history, they have been just pushing the crap out of mm -hmm. Splatoon. They had celebrity events, and they, like, catered to kids' birthday parties mm -hmm. and all kinds of commercials. Like, you, you don't normally see that from Nintendo, and it clearly paid off. Absolutely. Well, it's funny, too, because on top of the advertising, I know Nintendo talks a lot about word-of-mouth recognition, but Splatoon's been getting the word-of-mouth recognition, too, and that's... You know, part of the reason why it's seeing sustained high sales even after the initial launch period. In Japan, actually, the last couple of weeks, it's actually been increasing in weekly sales. So it's it's not just the advertising, but the advertising is drawing enough people to it that they're telling their friends about it. These are people who probably haven't been typically picking up these kinds of games from Nintendo, and so they're excited about this. Right, absolutely. Uh, it looks like investors were happy with Nintendo's quarterly report, too, as the company's stock jumped 8%, putting its stock value at over $25 billion. As for actual net worth, Nintendo has $4.3 billion in the bank and $8.5 billion in current assets. It's important to note, a lot of that profitability 
is because the yen is much weaker than the dollar. They're making a lot of their money overseas. So, you know, when they're when they're selling games overseas and it's coming back to the Japanese company, uh, that ultimately makes them more money on the dollar or on the yen or, you know, whatever the phrase would technically be correct as. It's a, it's uh, exchange gains. They're making money because yeah. the currency that they're making is, is increasing in value relative to the currency they use. Right. And like 70% of their market is overseas. Yes. So. Yeah, so that has a very disproportionate effect on their income. Right. Um, but but even so, you know, a lot of their money is coming from operating profits, which is was not something you could have said about some of their profits from uh, from past quarters. Um, they, they're actually making money on just the cost of doing business. They're not making money just on exchange gains and tax things. Um, the, the, the core business is, is healthy now. Yeah, and the, the hardware costs for both 3DS and Wii U are much better now because originally, both, well, 3DS launched profitable, but they had to give it a price cut very early on. So like six months later, 3DS was selling at a loss. And then Wii U also launched selling at a loss. So for a couple of years there, every time they sold any piece of hardware, they were losing money. And now, you know, they may not be selling a ton. Their sales numbers for the last quarter were not very impressive. They were actually pretty underwhelming. But each sale is actually making them a profit. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we saw with Splatoon, their software is selling well. And then you see with 4.2 more uh, million Amiibo sold in the last three months, they've got a peripheral that's selling very well. So they're not, they're not pulling in these huge numbers, but they're doing a lot of things pretty well. Mm -hmm. And they're pulling in a little bit of money from a lot of different things. Yeah. And then they'll be adding to that later this year when they uh, launch their first mobile game. Yeah. So, I'm sure you're all well familiar with Rareware, the incredible developers behind Donkey Kong Country, Banjo-Kazooie, and plenty more 90s Nintendo hits before Microsoft bought the company in 2002. The company's co-founder, Tim Stamper, recently reflected on his past at Rare, working with Nintendo, and he revealed that he has no idea why Nintendo didn't buy the company. Uh, he says that he thought Rare and Nintendo were a good fit. Yeah, you know, some of my favorite games from my childhood growing up were Rareware games, but... From what I understand, uh, they tended to come in over budget and things like that. So even if they did sell pretty well and did receive great ratings, they weren't actually super profitable for Nintendo. And I think Microsoft ended up paying something like $380 million to purchase Rare. So I guess Nintendo just thought it wasn't worth that gamble. Well, at the same time, I imagine it would be... Nintendo already owned 49% stake in the company, so even if they did want to go for a full 100% buyout, then they would have only had to pay half the price that Microsoft did. Yeah, that's a good and, point. You know, they could have only, they could have even just bought 2% more of the company. That would have been a drop in the bucket for them, and they would have gotten controlling interest out of it, made them a full-fledged... Well, I mean, I think the Stampers were looking to, to sell off completely, so I think they would have had to buy the 51. That's, well, yeah, I mean, I possible. guess it's possible the Stampers could have sold them 2% and... 49 to someone else, but I don't think you find many people willing <laughs> right. to make that purchase. Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm also curious whether, you know, toward the end of Rare's uh, relationship with Nintendo, they're producing all these, like, off-the-wall, mature games that really didn't fit the mold of their really popular games, like like Conker's Bad Fur Day and Perfect Dark. Conker's Bad Fur Day was, like, a big point of contention for Nintendo. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, a GoldenEye was a huge, that was a rousing success. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I I just kind of wonder if maybe the the sort of shift in in tone and direction might might have had something to do with with Nintendo backing off of them as a as a major strategic partner. And then ironically, after Microsoft purchased them, they started making Viva Pinata. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I wonder though, because you know, before they were doing that, you know, they were still doing Donkey Kong Country, Donkey Kong sixty four, Banjo Kazooie, Battletoads, and stuff like that, like in the NES days. 
I mean, even even setting aside for a moment the the later days of more mature games, you kind of have to wonder why they didn't buy them earlier on too, when they were yeah. making hit after hit after hit of Nintendo's like very like very bona fide Nintendo character kind of games. Yeah. Well, and especially during the N64 era, they were, like, hugely mm-hmm. productive compared to a lot of n- even other Nintendo studios at the time. Yeah. They were really their only strong third-party support during that era. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of the N64 era, actually, some old interviews and information behind the development process of the original Smash Bros. has recently been translated, and Sakurai reveals that part of the reason that Smash is a collection of Nintendo All-Stars is because many fighting games had too many unfamiliar new protagonists. Uh, he says... You know, if there's a game with these 16 totally new characters and you have no idea uh, who or what to buy into. He thought this was one of the reasons that fighting games at the time were doing really terribly on the market. And so he sought to avoid that with Smash. Yeah, and that makes sense because uh, a lot of the characters they wind up creating for these fighting games aren't really characters that would be recognizable to people outside of the fighting game sort of community. I mean, there's only a right. certain type of character that really fits in the whole for example street fighter aesthetic or tekken aesthetic Mm -hmm. uh smash is more approachable because it uses more approachable characters yeah and you know smash bros is a series designed to be a lot more easy to get into than a lot of technical fighters Mm -hmm. so for the more casual fans being able to play as their favorite character from an established franchise is just a huge selling point yeah absolutely sakurai also recently revealed that alf was originally planned to be a fully developed clone character in smash akin to toon link or ganondorf the main difference he notes is that Alf would have had Rock Pikmin, but of course I'm sure there are plenty of differences the team had stewing around in their minds. In the end, Alf of course was relegated to a simple character skin like the Koopalings. Ironically though, three character skins, Dr. Mario, Lucina, and Dark Pit, ended up being upgraded into full-blown characters. I'm almost inclined to say you should have done it just for the Rock Pikmin, because Rock Pikmin are awesome, and no <laughs> one can tell me otherwise. Well, I'm kind of glad that they didn't do that just because... All of our users are the worst kinds of people, as I frequently say. So having to put up with all of ours and Alf's all over the place with different movesets, too much. It's hysterical <laughs> that you say that because Olimar was the closest thing I had to a main in Brawl. Me too! Oh, I remember. Oh, okay. You I remember played you. I, I, I know. I kind of wish that they had done it so that Olimar could keep, like, the Pikmin chain and the, um, well, I guess the six Pikmin wouldn't have been changed, but... His moveset would be a little closer to Brawl, which I really loved. Yeah, I'm a little sad with a lot of the changes. Uh, in particular, yeah. the limitation on the number of Pikmin you can have following you. Yeah, it's just, absolutely. It's just a big display. Especially with something like 8-player Smash, it would be so much more useful to have more Pikmin. But, yeah, but whatever. For sure. Water under the bridge <laughs> at this point. Super Mario Maker is launching with 60 pre-made levels for fans to enjoy, which means it's about 60 to 80% the size of other 2D Mario games. But obviously it has that whole level editing and sharing thing on top, too. One of these levels is made by Michael Ansel, the creator of Rayman and Beyond Good and Evil, who also says he believes that Mario Maker will be entertaining for players both old and new, and may even inspire some to start creating video games. Another of these levels is made by a Facebook employee, as you may recall from that whole Facebook hackathon thing. But they've chosen the winning level, and you can check out footage of it at Gamnesia.com if you want to get a sneak peek at uh, one of the on-disc levels. Yeah, so for the people that are a little upset that this is going to be, you know, a a full retail $60 game. I think it's good that you're you're getting almost a complete Mario game in the package and then on top of that it's it's mostly a user generated content fueled experience. So that's that's actually a pretty good deal I would say. Yeah, so would I. And it's also kind of cool that they're reaching outside of the typical Nintendo development teams to get people to develop the uh, out of the box levels too because uh Yeah. You know, we haven't seen other people's takes on Mario really in an official Mario game before. 
Yeah, I'm kind of surprised that they're not going further with that, and maybe we'll see this in the coming months, but uh, they, they just have one developer so far. I would imagine that this would be a great opportunity to have, like, Yuji Naka, the creator of Sonic. Um, Sakurai could make a sort of Kirby-ish level. Um, you know, a lot more other official designers, both inside and out of Nintendo. Um, Keiji Inafune, uh, who could make some really cool stuff. That would be, and that would be a great sort of, if not incentive for people to pick up the game, at least a great sort of marketing angle that they could, you know, really talk about a lot. Definitely. Because, you know, how cool would it be to have all these famous game designers come together and create Mario levels in an official game? Yeah. I mean, there's a certain point where part of the appeal is that you have amateurs making levels. Uh, Oh, right. Of course. So, I mean, yeah, it'd it'd be really cool to see the all-star developers thing. And that might be something that would be cool to make an event out of. But but I'd hate for this to become like a thing where they get Hideo Kojima to make the game and then they have to put his name on the (laughs) box. And then, um, you know, like I'd hate for it to be about the developers. It really should be about the idea that you can make a Mario game. I heard that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I agree. So. Nintendo also announced that moderators will be playing Super Mario Maker levels to gauge their difficulty before the public's able to play them. Just, you know, so this whole user-generated thing doesn't get, you know, too too out of hand. I will say, if this is, if they're going to be testing every level, then I think it could be longer of a wait than people are expecting, maybe, between yeah. when they up their load their level and when the public can play it. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm really hoping that this doesn't mean insane wait times between... Because, you know, so much of the satisfaction, I think, of a system like this is being able to share your level and instantaneously start getting feedback on it. Right. I'm kind of inclined to say that this is BS and this is their obscenity filter and not actually about difficulty. Because they had said previously that they will require you to beat your own level, which you would think would be enough of a check. So I'm thinking it there's something something else going on here besides just difficulty. I was thinking the same thing, but they also we saw at E3 they have like a five I think it is star difficulty like rating system. Uh-huh. So they may just be thinking, you know, we don't really want users falsely rating the difficulty of their own levels and then making insane levels rating them one star difficulty and flooding the whole you know yeah. for, for new players. I mean, I guess that's true, but I could I could see the community policing itself well enough in that if some people are rating it one and some are rating it five there's clearly something going on there you know right. well like then you can also check the uh, well, like percentage of times that a level was completed creator making yeah right. like that i don't, yeah, I don't feel true. like they need to go through this extra that's true, moderation yeah. step at least not the way that they're talking about yeah. it here um but but i don't really know what exactly they have in mind i'm just spitballing right someone has been tampering with splatoon and discovered some previously hidden info in addition to a ton of new weapons, which you can learn more about at Gamnesia.com, he discovered that there's fully developed data for a playable Octolink character in uh, Turf Wars. Until now, players have been able to choose between an Inkling boy and an Inkling girl for, you know, the Inkopolis and the single player and all, all that stuff. But it seems a third option will be coming in a future update. If you want to check out the Octoling in action, that too can be found at Gamnesia. Uh, he's got, like, footage of the playable character in Turf War. Uh, you can also see it on his personal YouTube channel, NW Player One Two Three. Now, what I'd like to see is a Octoling campaign, because oh, you know, if you guys if you guys have read the Sunken Scrolls, it sounds very much like they're fighting against each other for survival, and there really isn't a good guy or a bad guy. They're just yeah. So, spoiler alert. <laughs> so they're uh, in Splatoon. I, I would love to see that expanded on more because the Inklings and Octolings are such great characters. You know. Yeah. 
Well, the ink, the octal, a lot of the octolings are really generic, ugly lame. Sure, like but like the, the, but the, the human ones that transform one. for sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And they could maybe even, you know, do, maybe there are inklings that we haven't seen that can't transform, that are only squids. I would love to see that kind of thing in a sequel, actually. Yeah. Like, you know, flip it around and it's from the oct, or like a good, not a good and evil, because as you said, it's not good and evil. It's just like two sides, but two sides to the story campaign in like, if there's a Splatoon 2. And of course, this would inevitably well, mean when the uh, retailer exclusive Octoling amiibo. But oh, we won't absolutely, that. <laughs> a brand new Splatoon map has also been leaked, previously unseen in any game promos. Unlike uh, you know Camp Triggerfish, Bluefin Depot, and other stuff like that, was already in like the single player mode. Uh, we had seen it in other trailers. This this new map, there's there are actually a couple. One from the other leak too. There's a bridge map and a like an underground like subway kind of station. I think it was yeah. map. And, uh, yeah, it's kind of neat. And so, yeah, you can check those both out. So, I don't own the game. Can you guys answer something for me? Is this new this new content regularly coming out, is this still all on-disc stuff being unlocked? Or is it are they starting to, like, digitally release new content now? Version 2.0 came out, uh, like, five days ago. So, that was digitally released mm-hmm. new content. Um, this stuff I think is also new content because obviously we've got people data mining, like this guy who found mm-hmm. the Octoling. All he did to find the Octoling, by the way, he edited his save file. Uh, he saw that Inkling Girl was like hex number zero and Inkling Boy was hex number one. And he was just like, I wonder what happens if I change it to two. And he changed it to two and he discovered there was a fully playable Octoling, like already completely made. Nice. So, yeah. But yeah, so it seems like this is stuff that's coming coming new because these people aren't finding stuff like that now. They're they're finding it like traces of it in updates. They're finding uh, they're finding it later. They're not whereas the other stuff, it seemed like you could find it all on disc before. Yeah, this sounds a lot more like the the Ryu Smash Bros leaks where they've been yeah. sort of getting ready to release new content as part of the updates and so they're they're planting right. seeds and and it'll all come out later. Right. Um but I think with 2.0, all the stuff that came in 2.0 was new con- new downloaded content, including these traces. Yeah, so I'd say uh, their strategy then of keeping some stuff on the disc just locked away, it worked pretty well because being able to just regularly release new content kind of re-interested people who had maybe set the game down for a while, and they were able to keep that going just long enough until they could create new content. And now, obviously, as we've seen from these other these leaks of you know upcoming maps and weapons and stuff, They've got a lot more planned, so I, I'm mm-hmm. I'm really impressed by the way they've supported this. I was kind of unsure if Nintendo would be able to keep a healthy online shooter community going, but so far they've done an excellent job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'd say the pacing has been perfect. Uh, it's I I don't ever feel like I haven't had enough time for any of the weapons. Uh, I don't feel like stuff is coming out too slowly or too fast. It's all coming right when I'm ready for something new. Um, in yeah. particular, the yeah. weapons. The weapons have been really nicely paced. Good job, Nintendo. Yeah. <laughs> Splatoon's producer recently revealed some new information as well, including uh, why four-on-four teams are the perfect balance for the game. And the super jump was originally conceived because the characters were rabbits, which we talked about before. But, you know, obviously the jump made sense back then. When they changed them to squids, they just, you know, it was such a good mechanic, they just didn't want to get rid of it. Uh, and finally, they revealed that they were considering naming the game Ikasukis, which is not only four puns wrapped all in one package, uh, but it also, it roughly translates to stylish squid kids. In, uh, in English, that'd probably be fresh squid kids. Fresh squid kids. Oh, that'd be good, actually. <laughs> fresh squid kids. 
And that'll be the subtitle for the sequel. I don't know. Or the 90s style sitcom. Oh, God, that's great. <laughs> Pitch it. Can you imagine, like, teenager, like, hip-hop 90s culture? Fresh Squid Kids. Yeah. And then they'll make, yeah. like, a directed DVD movie. <laughs> and it'll, yeah, it'll be just like the 90s. <laughs> and then they'll make the one where they're all grown up. And then everyone will cry. Uh, no, yeah. I agree. Four <laughs> and four teams are excellent. It allows the maps to be just the right size. It allows there to be just enough mm-hmm. in terms of action and player encounters. Uh, it creates some desperation when you're cornered by, you know, three or four of the other guys. Mm-hmm. Um, and that just, it's, I haven't yet played any of the private battles where you can have smaller rooms, but, but it, it just works. And it, it's not so bad that it takes forever to find a team most of the time, but... You know, it's it's a big enough uh, player size that it keeps things fresh, like Squid Kids. Reports are coming in saying that Nintendo is developing a new game in the Momotaru Dentetsu series, a board game style franchise owned by Konami, who absorbed Hudson Soft, the series' creators, in 2012. Uh, the reports aren't confirmed, but they do say that Konami is really only interested in the game's licensing fees. <laughs> What's really surprising... What? Konami. <laughs> <laughs> What's really surprising about this is that this is, would be the first time, uh, I believe ever, that Nintendo will have developed a sequel to a game that they don't own. They've developed games for franchises in other media before, like Hamtaro and Popeye, but even that was really rare and it hasn't happened in years and years and years. So you know what Nintendo needs to do now? They need to develop a Bomberman game. And then put Bomberman and Smash Brothers. Yeah. And then they will have, like, almost all of the great cartoony gaming classic characters from the era. I really don't disagree with that. I'm not really partial to Bomberman and Smash, but I do recognize that that's a character who really belongs in gaming again. Yeah. Hasn't been in gaming for a long, long time. And, you know, if anyone's going to do it, it's got to be Nintendo. God knows it shouldn't be Konami. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it wouldn't work on PlayStation or Xbox, as we saw from the, like, terrible Code Zero re- reboot. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> the newest Pokemon movie trailer teases two new Pokemon, or perhaps two new forms of old Pokemon. Uh, either way, there's an adorable little green blob type thing, and a huge monstrous behemoth that's covered in shadows. You can't really see it all that well. But Koro Koro is teasing that they'll reveal more information on these Pokemon next month. But in the meantime, you can check out these guys for yourself at Gamnesia. You think there's any chance that there will still be a uh, Pokemon Z version? Uh, well, they could be Zygarde-like forms. Yeah, it's possible. I know, like the little one is green, which so is Zygarde. It's kind of, it's kind of got like two little snaky body segments a little bit. Um, I don't know. Seems like a bit of a downgrade. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, could be like a baby form or something. But the Zygarde definitely seems to be the like theory in the fan community, the prevailing theory. Um, but we'll see. My theory is it will actually be like Ridley in Metroid Other M, and it will be Pokemon Other Z or something ridiculous. <laughs> not, Other Z, not serious. With really long cut scenes with monotone speeches. Yes. <laughs> well, speaking of Metroid, uh, great segue. <laughs> Thank you, Alex. I know. Uh, Kensuke Tanabe, the producer of Metroid the Prime series, says that he was surprised by the huge backlash against Federation Force, but uh, this backlash gives them the opportunity to release an incredible game and change people's minds. He also mentioned that he has ideas for the game's amiibo functionality, but since they aren't finalized, he won't share them. He did say, though, that it would be nice to have an amiibo of the Federation soldiers' mech suits, so feel free to read into that if you want. Yeah, Federation soldiers. It's just what I've always wanted from Metroid. (laughs) It's my favorite thing about Metroid Prime 3. That's all I'm going to (laughs) say. Nintendo and DNA have been pretty quiet about what exactly their first dive into mobile gaming will be, but we know that the companies are currently making plans for when and how they'll announce that first title. 
Nintendo of America's VP of Sales, Scott Moffat, recently said that Nintendo can't deny how big smartphone gaming has become and reiterated that their mobile plans are going to be an additive to their console business. He specifically points out that there are a lot of kids out there too young to buy their own consoles who will be introduced to the world of Nintendo, and then by the time they are old enough to own their own systems, they'll have already forged a bond with the Nintendo world, Nintendo characters. Analysts, meanwhile, agree that after Nintendo's financial successes and the approach of their mobile gaming branch, that they are really poised for a huge comeback. I would be really surprised if their first mobile game wasn't some sort of variation of Mario. Oh yeah, me too. And it's just such a big thing. The, the, the only thing I could imagine it possibly being, if not Mario, is Nintendogs. Just considering that's like the 10th best-selling game of all time or something like that. That's the game that really launched the DS as a casual platform. Well... But I think it'll be Mario. I guess it depends if you count Pokemon, because I'm pretty sure that'll be an early one as well. I mean, you, you could, always, you well, could they already, already have say Pokemon Shuffle mobile games. I mean, be one. But, um... Yeah, but that's not part of their playing with DNA. That's the Pokemon company making it. Yeah, like, yeah I the agree Pokemon with you. company already makes like mobile apps. So. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, so, it's still possible they could use that IP, you know, in, in conjunction with the Pokemon company and DNA. Who knows right. what they've uh, got planned behind the scenes. Right, right. But I, I just figure if the Pokemon company is already using it, Nintendo's not likely to. Yeah. Uh, another possibility I could see is uh, Fire Emblem. Uh, since that series has had this sort of unprecedented popularity boom, uh, they just released a trading card game, and that'd be something that'd be interesting to digitize. You're talking about games down the line right not their first not game? necessarily their first but maybe one of their first okay you know especially okay. with with like i said the card game and they've they've been merchandising it i think they're making an anime yeah. aren't they yeah for um, sure. like the, there's all kinds of tie-in opportunities for that but they're making a manga i was uh, that's right it's a manga yeah uh, plus it's a strategy game so even if it had nothing to do with the card game uh strategy games actually work decently well on mobile especially turn-based ones. oh yeah sure. they they've the said they're saga. planning five games with five different genres so i could easily see strategy or you know rpg being one of them yeah mm -hmm. We've got a little bit of a bigger chunk of news to chew here. Chris Pranger, a localization writer for the Nintendo Treehouse, recently visited the Part-Time Gamer podcast to discuss some of the ins and outs of Nintendo. Obviously, the big thing they discussed is localization, uh, but before we get into that, they also talk a little bit about Sakurai and Smash Bros. Uh, he says that Sakurai's outlook on the Smash series is very dire due to the way that fans react to some of the things that you know, some of the changes in Smash games. Brawl, for example, did a total 180 from Melee's fast-paced competitive engine, and negative reactions to things like that in turn upset Sakurai. He says Sakurai's a really genuine creator who takes great pride in his work, and it really makes him sad when, when leaks happen or when people react ne negatively to parts of the game, etc. Well, there's something to be said if people are passionate enough about something that you're making that they're complaining to you about it. So. Oh, for sure. Honestly, that is, I think, the big thing I've, I've, I've gotten out of this. I really do feel for Sakurai a lot in, you know, that, that he's, he's really passionate about, like, his vision for these games. Yeah, he's, like, killing himself working so hard. Yeah, but at the same time, he's doing it so well, and he's, he's, he's doing these really beloved characters such justice that that speaks to what a great job he is doing. Yeah. Even if fans disagree with some of the minute details of his vision, that his vision has gotten so many people to care just that intensely about the product is really something special. Yeah. You hear a lot of stories about developers being pretty sensitive to criticism for their work, and understandably so, especially with someone like Sakurai, who, you know, puts in insane hours. Who doesn't and, have you know, arms. Yeah, he's got, like, non-functioning arms <laughs> and still, like, types 10 hours a day. But, you know, 
overall, you got to look at it, and Smash is both one of the highest selling and one of the most critically acclaimed Nintendo IPs ever. So, you know, it sucks that there's a vocal minority that complains about everything, Melee fans, but, but at the end of the day, overwhelmingly, Smash is just one of the most beloved franchises in gaming absolutely absolutely so it's unfortunate that you know sakurai finds it hard to look past those negative fans and see just how much his product mm-hmm. is loved and still loved it's yeah. not like they're losing we're losing smash fans smash is even on one of right. nintendo's roughest generations is is still selling as well as ever well between the 3ds and wii u versions obviously oh yeah, yeah yeah okay i think there's also uh you know he talked about like leaks and uh sakurai we know was really sad when like subspace emissary cutscenes were uploaded to youtube Part of that, you know, I think, like the subspace emissary cutscenes, for example, just by nature of the industry he's working in, the place and time we are in, if you make cutscenes for a game, they will find their way to YouTube immediately. It's inevitable. Like, it's absolutely inevitable. Um, That's something I think, you know, and, you know, obviously Brawl was years ago. I'm sure he has accepted it and moved on. Uh, If he hasn't, he should. Um, But especially since Smash is in a series that's about visuals it's not about cutscenes. right it might be about watching um, other people play there's a lot of enjoyment you can get out of that but it's not about right. cutscenes, certainly right and but the other thing too is that is that when cutscenes are like being shared on the internet that much that means that people like them so much that they they just want to get to the cutscenes and enjoy the cutscenes for them yeah. not not pl- not like play the game in order to access them which yeah. you know on the one hand i feel for him he's a game developer he wants people to play the game but games are also going to be broken up and put on YouTube and, and, and accessed outside of the context of their game. And that's, that's something that's, if a developer is upset by the fact that that happens, like, they're just going to be upset after every game they make. Yeah. But the other thing is, like, leaks, for example. You know, those are also inevitable. Something like the ESRB leak really shouldn't have happened. But, you, you know, you take the, the data mining leak for, like, Roy and Ryu... If you're going to leave the files in the game called Ryu and with the Street Fighter victory theme, like, you can bet someone's going to find that. That's not, like, that's a, a preventable leak. Yeah. Well, and not only that, but people care enough to look and care enough to spread these things around. And, you know, mm-hmm. like, it's no reason to be sad. It's it's a reason to celebrate. It's a reason to be happy. Yeah. yeah. People love your product and yeah, want absolutely. more of it and are glad you're giving them more of it yeah and that's especially true of the things like the characters and you know if someone's saying like oh sakurai why didn't you put ridley in the game i want ridley that's not saying like you did a bad job that's saying you do such a good job i want you to do a good job on a thing that i also really like yeah anyway on to the localization subject so the big thing that came out of this was that pranger said that these games that you hear about localization movements for uh, like the operation rainfall games for example Uh, they often lose Nintendo money. The big one that he points to is Xenoblade Chronicles, which is a ridiculously large game with hours and hours of dialogue to translate and record, um, and yet a comparatively small audience, even for a less cost-intensive game. He says American fans were really, really lucky that Nintendo of Europe ultimately decided to bite the bullet and localize the game, because NOA wasn't going to do it, and it did lose NOE money. You know, I don't think this whole money-losing thing would be such a problem if Nintendo committed to creating a market for these games on their platforms. Yeah. Because as it stands, it's like you'd throw your install base to be built up because you aren't giving them any reason to come to your platform. 
Right. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. People don't buy JRPGs, so let's not localize these JRPGs. Right. Like, you look at mm-hmm. what Sony did with PlayStation. They managed to pretty much eat up the JRPG market on consoles because they were funding a lot of the JRPGs that were coming out during the first two PlayStation eras. Now they don't even have to fund them. Well, a lot of them they have to fund now. But during the PlayStation 3 era, they didn't yeah. have to fund a lot of them. Final Fantasy was coming anyway, regardless of Sony not throwing money at Square anymore. It's interesting that you bring up Sony because they actually... Not Sony specifically, but Japanese developers. Koei Tecmo, their some executive, said that uh, Japanese developers are localizing PS4 games more than any previous generation just because Japan's console install base is just so much lower now. And uh, consoles are selling better in the Western markets than in the Eastern markets. And Japanese gamers almost have to yeah. localize their games to make a profit on PS4. So it's, it's clearly possible to establish yourself in the West. Right, well, but I also, I think at least in terms of like these angles for Nintendo specifically, I think it's important to recognize they don't have a huge JRPG uh, install base and releasing Xenoblade Chronicles in, what was that, 2009, isn't going to create a huge JRPG install base when I think the Wii U was already announced at that point, wasn't it? No, it wasn't announced. No. It, it was announced came by out... the time it came to the West, though. Yes, yes, yeah. that's correct. That kind of situation isn't going to arise at that point. But what can arise is, you know, a, a big marketing push. Like we saw with Splatoon, they know how to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, they released Xenoblade Chronicles as a GameStop exclusive. No marketing involved whatsoever. You know, I, I feel for them in that they probably didn't want to put a big campaign behind a game they knew was not likely to sell too well. But like you said, self-fulfilling prophecy. If they're not going to try it, then it's not going to sell well, and they're not going to be able to do stuff like that in the future. Uh, whereas if if they had really gone for a big campaign with Xenoblade Chronicles, you know, maybe it would have cost more in the short term, but they would have built the brand better. They would have set Xenoblade Chronicles X up for a better future, and they would have they would have certainly, I think, helped breathe a little bit of life into the Wii, even if in the short term it would have lo- lost them a little bit of money. Yeah. Well, because also by that point, NOA wouldn't have done any of the localization. They would have just done the marketing because NOA already... Yeah, well, especially given the the degree of quality people assign to the first Xenoblade, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's a huge missed opportunity to not make that one of your four forerunners. I mean, Shulk did get in Smash, so it is getting some mainstream representation and recognition. But, you know, how, when have you seen them push Xenoblade Chronicles X outside of, like, maybe a short video in a Nintendo Direct where they don't even really talk about it? I, I don't see it being part of their holiday push. I don't see it i just don't see it being the franchise they're even sort of pretending it is now when they're bringing it to e3 it's just it's just it's all lip service at this yeah point. it was only just playable for the first time in the public like two days ago at gamescom well to yeah. be fair they have been playable been, at e3 yet and they hadn't probably hadn't had a good localized build prior right. to that but but the other thing too is you know xenoblade is a is a series that serves a great void for for audiences and types of gameplay experiences on nintendo's platforms and if they're going to keep not pushing it like they've been doing, um, then either they're going to have to stop making these expensive, expensive Xenoblade games, or they are just going to have to keep sort of piddling along, pretending that Xenoblade is something that they're enthusiastic about bringing, when really they're just spending huge amounts of money localizing it and then, and then not getting the sales out of it that would justify those costs. Yeah. But who knows? We'll see, maybe we'll see a huge marketing push for Xenoblade Chronicles X. I'll believe it when I see it, I guess. <laughs> yeah. He also mentions that sometimes to cut localization costs, they will have NOA employees voice some of their characters. Pranger himself, for example, plays the first boss in Star Fox Zero. He says uh, that stuff like that is just, you know, some of the fun perks of being a localization employee for Nintendo. 
This explains a lot about Star Fox. <laughs> yeah, at this point, we're just used to Star Fox having these campy, ridiculous lines and voice acting and stuff. So <laughs> you might as well just have your, you know, your NOA guys do the voices. You, you don't yeah. exactly need to bring in professional voice actors for Star Fox. Bill, you're okay. Yeah, it's it's tradition at this point. We can we can keep that. While we're on the subject of localization, actually, fans are hard at work translating Captain Rainbow, a Japan-only Wii game. You may have heard about, uh, I think we've talked about it once or twice on this show before. Uh, anyway, it's a cute little game that stars a bunch of forgotten, obscure Nintendo characters like Takamaru, Lip, Little Mac, but before Punch-Out! was revived, obviously. They've translated the script fully and are now looking for someone to help develop a patch so that English-speaking audiences can finally play the game. So if you're interested in, in seeing more about that, or maybe you want to even offer your help, you can check that out as well. But finally, probably the biggest story we have yet to discuss, the Wii U's biggest third-party exclusive has jumped ship to PS4, Xbox One, and even PC. Despite building the game around using the gamepad, Ubisoft is bringing Zombie U to these other consoles, now called simply Zombie. Pretty much all of the gamepad's exclusive features have been made to work with the, just the one screen, uh, but the multiplayer mode, which had one person playing on the TV and another on the gamepad screen, will not be returning. What I find most interesting about this is that it means that, you know, some developer was able to think outside the box and say, you know, we don't really need a second screen to show stuff that was on the second screen. We can overlay it over the, the screen that we already have, and, and that's a solution I can see working uh, for a lot of other Nintendo games where they kind of rely on you being able to see things that were moving on the gamepad while you're actually playing the action. You don't have to pause and open up another menu. So I can see it working for an example, for example, in like Wind Waker, where uh, it, it really mm -hmm. helps to be able to see exactly where your position is on the map. Uh, that, that might also be nice in, in Zelda U. Um, and, and that gives me hope, actually, that we might see uh, a lot of games that kind of could have done better on we or on a platform that wasn't Wii U, for example, uh, NX, if that does well. Uh, a lot of the games like Pikmin Three uh, that that didn't really get to soar might get their second life and their second chance at life without really compromising a, a lot of the the features that made them great. Yeah, right there with you. So the game's definitely workable with just the one screen, but I'll always say uh, part of the thrill or the tension of Zombie U was that having, you know, the gamepad sort of as your bag, you actually have to act sort of like you would in that real situation where you have to be looking up and looking around and then, you know, going back to what you're doing in your uh, yeah. zombie survival bag. Whereas now it's just overlaid on the screen, so you're just kind of paying attention to the background while you navigate a menu. Not quite the same effect, but it still gets the job done. Right. Yeah. And I think I think it's, it's kind of... It's amusing to me that to this day the best use of the gamepad was done by a third-party company and is now at least the most immersive yeah yeah uh and is now <laughs> moving away from the, the the dual screen setup and as always to conclude the news segment of this week's show we're bringing you a lightning round with little nuggets of information if you want to read any more about the stories we discussed above or anything that you hear about in the upcoming lightning round you can check them out at gamnesia.com the latest podcast episode will show up in the scrolling feature bar at the top of the site and on that page you'll be able to see all these links so first, some upcoming dates to look out for, as well as some recent releases. September 11th, Super Mario Maker launches alongside its related amiibo. And for the US, that's also the launch date of the following amiibo. Ganondorf, Olimar, Bowser Jr., Dr. Mario, and Zero Suit Samus. September 16th, Typo Man releases on Wii U. September 25th, the Retro Amiibo 3-pack launches exclusively at GameStop, containing Rob, Mr. Game & Watch, and Duck Hunt. And those three are not sold individually in North America. 
October 13th, Legend of Zelda Symphony of the Goddesses is coming to New York with music from games that are not yet released. Uh, it's unclear whether that means Triforce Heroes or Zelda U or both. They did say games, plural, so... Clearly, Hyrule uh, Warriors 3DS. <laughs> Just kidding. I don't know. Well, if it has new music in it, honestly... Yeah. Can't imagine that Zelda U would be appearing in Symphony of the Goddesses this early. So yeah, certainly not before it's reappeared Zelda. at an E3 or something. Yeah. Huh. And then October 23rd is the launch of The Legend of Zelda Triforce Heroes for both Europe and North America. Also on October 23rd, the Mewtwo Amiibo launches in Europe. We've also got the original Xenoblade Chronicles now available on the European eShop. The original 3DS's Amiibo Reader is available for pre-order at GameStop if you didn't want to upgrade to the new Nintendo 3DS and still want to use your Amiibo on the go. And then we've got some general facts from last week and reminders for you. Nintendo is releasing a Mario series soundtrack in Japan celebrating 30 years of Mario. They've also sent out a ton of collectible trinkets to various pachinko machines and the like, so if you're a super collector, Godspeed, my friends. The latest Smash Bros. update made some balancing changes, and we've got your back with a list of every single buff and nerf made for all characters. So if you want to check out how your mains have been rebalanced and for some reason haven't seen it yet, we've got your back. Meanwhile, a modder made Krom playable in Smash Wii U as a skin for Marth. Dragon Quest XI is coming to 3DS, and it might be localized. We've also got some footage of the game on the handheld. Square Enix is also considering releasing the game on NX, as well as a port of Final Fantasy XIV for NX. Animal Crossing Happy Home Designer is now available in Japan, and it sold over half a million copies at launch. They also sold over 300,000 packs of their Animal Crossing Amiibo cards before selling almost completely out of them. Rareware was developing a spin-off of Perfect Dark for Nintendo 64 that eventually got canned. A bunch of Nintendo and related characters are getting some awesome-looking Nendoroid figures, including Mega Man, Marth, and Young Link. We've got some images, and man, they look great. Sakurai wrote about Iwata's funeral in one of his more recent columns for Famitsu. It's thoughtful and provocative and a meaningful read if you're interested. We've got some new Star Fox Zero footage showing off the Walker and the Landmaster. We've also got more than 30 minutes of English footage for Xenoblade Chronicles X. Activision wanted DK and Bowser in Nintendo's Skylanders crossover because they wanted to make those characters specifically playable in a 3D game. Amazon says Fire Emblem Fates is launching as just one game in Europe as opposed to the split versions it's launching as in North America and already launched in Japan. And finally, Mighty Number no. 9 has been delayed to 2016 and the developers say they feel absolutely terrible about it. So that's all for our news segment this week. Uh, if we've got time after the break, we will be talking about uh, what games we've been playing. We'll be taking some fan questions. So I guess you'll see in a few seconds if, if we ended up able to have those discussions. So do stay tuned. Buddy, we are back with more Nintendo Week. I'm your host, Colin McIsaac, and as always, I'm joined by Alex Plant. Hey. And Ben Lamoureux. Welcome back. You sounded so sad to say that. Oh, did I? <laughs> no, I Ben. Was going... <laughs> no. Welcome back. 
You know I'm incapable of emotion, Colin. Gotta keep talking for 20 minutes. I could be sleeping now. Recharging your batteries? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So for this discussion segment, we are taking some more fan questions. It's our second Mystery House segment in the show. Uh, if we have time, we'll maybe be talking about like some of the some of the more recent games we've been playing. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll see. We'll get a feel for it. So let's, let's jump into some of these questions. For those of you who don't know the Mystery House approach... We get some fan questions from you guys. If you want to send in your own questions for future Mystery House segments, you can just email colin at gamnesia.com. I'll be reading some questions from our from our email inbox, and Ben and Alex have not heard these before. Uh, honestly, this batch, a lot of them were so long ago that I don't remember them anyway, so we'll all be answering them blind. Colin's actually just making up questions on the spot. I actually have uh, Cleverbot typing to me. <laughs> <laughs> so Nick asks... I'd be interested if you guys tackled maybe Nintendo games you wished you hadn't played or thought were overrated, uh, because we all know you guys are fans of Nintendo, and I think it would be an interesting talking point. Nintendo games I wish overrated. I hadn't played. Captain Toad. No, that is a lie. <laughs> um, hmm. I wish I hadn't question. bought all the Kirby games on Wii Virtual Console. Oh, on the Virtual Console. Why is that? Because I haven't finished any of them. Oh. Um, and it, it, and it's not to say that Kirby games are bad. It's just like I have a very specific appetite these days, and so they're not the kinds of games that yeah. I really feel like I'm getting the the right value for the time I'm putting into them, and, and yeah. the money I'm putting into them, obviously. Um, so, so I I do wish I hadn't tried to kind of dip so much into Kirby's history when I really have only played and liked a couple of his games anyway. Oh, I've got one. Um, I was super disappointed with Kid Icarus Uprising. Really? I, yeah, I only played like five levels into it and just couldn't get into it and ended up taking it back to GameStop. Oh, I wish I hadn't played those 25 minutes of my life. I know, right? Just ruined <laughs> um, my day. I, there are not really any big Nintendo games that stand out to me as, you know, not deserving of their legacies. So this is probably going to be a disappointing answer for you. But I wish I had not played Mario Party 10. Because <laughs> that just makes me so, so sad to see how boring those games are now. It's like Mario Party, I feel like, is not that hard to do right. And somehow, they just keep messing it up. It's, no, it has a lot to do with that whole trying to be different thing, Well, I, I think. It's, it's stale. It's not different. It's like, it is different. Well... It's and different that, and, and, in exclusively bad ways, though. Right. <laughs> if you were excited about the differences, it might not feel so stale. Right, right. But, but as it is, they just grab old, from old content. Uh, mm -hmm. In particular, they've been grabbing from New Super Mario Brothers for, like, every spinoff, it feels like. Yeah. Um, and that just, that just doesn't really That's carry. a good... I wish I hadn't played New Super Mario Bros. 2 or Super Mario 3D Land. Oh, really? Maybe not so much Super Mario like 3D Land. Yeah, but, I like 3D Land already, but I, I knew what I was getting when I bought Super Mario yeah, Bros. 2. I knew yeah. exactly what I was getting. And it was it was a solid game, yeah, but it, it just didn't really offer anything new. It wasn't worth the time new. to me. I could have been doing something more, more interesting. More coins. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I mean, Super Mario Bros. 2, I enjoy, I actually kind of enjoyed Coin Rush, but I, that's not a game I'll ever probably be able to play through again. Uh, the the, the one-player story, man. Yeah. It's, it's just too easy, too bland. Um, I've criticized it, uh, maybe not on this podcast, but I've criticized Nintendo a lot for throwing too many coins at you already, because it makes the whole dying thing really insignificant and pointless, and Mario is this game that descended from the arcades. Like, it needs to have the, the lives and, and the stakes, and, and it needs to be challenging to get a high score, and that's just not what I got out of New Super Mario Bros. 2, outside mm -hmm. of Coin Rush. 
Yeah. This question comes from Eric Segriff. And feel free to jump in, you two, if you want. It sounds like this is something uh, more for me, though. Uh, Eric asks, were your Nintendo Week discussions inspired by Game Explains discussions? I would say it was certainly uh, influenced by Game Explains discussions, uh, you know, just in that there are a lot of different kinds of gaming discussions on YouTube and podcasting and other media, and being one of the most prominent ones, uh, we do listen to a lot of Game Explain, and so that has sort of... Uh, you know, helped us understand better, like, what kind of medium this sort of audio discussion is. Um, but I wouldn't say it was inspired by Game Explain. Uh, I would say it was inspired by, actually, uh, IGN's Nintendo podcast, Nintendo Voice Chat. Um, I love listening to that every week. Those guys do a great job. Um, and that sort of showed me what a great uh, platform podcasting can be. And, uh, of course, our format is really different. They have sort of more dedicated, longer-form discussions about the smaller news, and even about uh, like the same kinds of subjects we might discuss in in discussion segments. Um, but it's it's you know it's a really, I would say it's a really different kind of podcast. So that format was really you know entirely my own creation, and uh, I, I could get into why uh, like, like how I came up with that format, what I wanted it to serve. But for the sake of brevity, I'll save that for another time if if someone asks that question. Yeah, I guess speaking for me, like Colin approached me about this probably back it was back in January or something like that. And I've I used to write full time for a games blog, but you know, I've got a full time job now, so I can actually pay my bills. It's pretty important. And so <laughs> you gotta be a functioning human in society. <laughs> I have to be an adult. Uh but but this was a good way for me to stay kind of stay connected with, with you know, the hobby that kind of got me where where I am today, formed me as a human being, uh in a in a fun way, like you were saying, but also in a way that lets me be more free and more loose and more myself. Because, you know, I think when when I tend to write, and and writing is usually my preferred medium. It's I'm actually stepping out of my comfort zone to be po- talking on a podcast. But when I'm writing, there's a a certain level of sort of professionalism and 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 polish that I don't need here, and I can just kind of be myself and just be loose and just say what comes to mind, and it's there's no filter. Hashtag. Um, Colin will edit stuff out maybe alex after dark <laughs> oh god it's okay waluigi Let's... takes care of the curses for me oh wow waluigi uh oh my god our next question is about waluigi ah. <laughs> yeah, for, for of being, course it is for being such a wicked guy for being such a wicked waluigi uh, i need to censor he's, he's awfully kid friendly <laughs> did you i feel like you were talking about something before I don't remember. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Waluigi is more important. <laughs> Waluigi time. Wah. Uh, Hector asks, do you think Waluigi could appear in a video game besides Mario spinoff games? Uh, obviously, yeah. Um, I don't know if you count Smash as a Mario spinoff, but I'm sure by Smash Bros. 8, he'll probably be playable. Um, uh, but, you know, he could... He could obviously make appearances in WarioWare. Um, I, I don't think there's really any reason why... Well, I don't know about the 2D platformers or anything, but, you know, I, I don't think it's too far out of the question. Um, I think what would be a lot better for Waluigi and a lot better fit and just so much more fun for, like, everyone ever um, would be, you know, we know Nintendo is looking into, like, doing films and stuff uh, or, like, partnering with other people to do films and stuff. I think what they need to do, sort of like... If you think back to, I'm sure none of you listening are old enough to actually remember this, but uh, back long time ago, Disney used to put Mickey Mouse cartoons before just about every movie they released. 
Mickey Mouse cartoons were also obviously distributed like on their own. Um, and then, you know, the, the, the Mickey Mouse cartoon format kind of thing. And that's actually continued now, not in the same sense that it's always like Mickey Mouse or a specific character. But, you know, you go to the movies, you'll see before like any Pixar movie, they'll have an animated short. They'll do the same before a lot of DreamWorks movies. I think that if Nintendo is serious about this movie thing, they should have like cartoon shorts following Wario and Waluigi that are put <laughs> before every one of the movies they release. Uh, before a Mario movie, before a Zelda movie, before Metro movie, whatever it is. Um, and I say this because Wario and Waluigi are interesting in the games. They're fun for sure. But really, they're really just so much better as cartoon characters and like tr- true cartoon characters, not video game characters. Um, I, if you know, you, you look at like the Mario Power Tennis introduction or really any of the moves he does in that game, uh, a lot of the like, like trick moves he does in like the Mario baseball games and really any sort of spinoff, uh, it's all just so animated and cartoony and their misadventures are just so perfect. Um, and I would love to see more of those uh, like professionally done. Um, and I think that's kind of the medium that serves him best is like, you know, three to five minute cartoon shorts of Wario and Waluigi pulling pranks, getting into trouble, um, you know, doing stupid stuff. And, you know, just being their awful, terrible selves. You know, we heard a, a report a while ago that Nintendo was in talks to have a bigger presence in Wreck-It Ralph 2. I think it would be <gasps> awesome if we got uh, Waluigi or, and Wario as oh part of Oh my that. god! Yes! That'd actually be a great storyline concept where they're sort of involved in trying to wreck up Mario's life. Yeah, well that... I always sort of thought something great for Waluigi would be... This was back, like, before Sakurai said there's no subspace emissary in Smash 4, stuff like that. I really wanted to see the new Subspace Emissary have a like a B-tier storyline where Wario and Waluigi are off doing their own crazy stuff, trying to just like steal money from people and like, you know, vandalize trains and stuff. I don't know. Um, just really like there's their stupid petty crimes that they always do. And then somehow it just gets tied up in this, you know, way bigger plan of like Master Hand is destroying the world and whatever, all these universes. And they're just like, oh, we just wanted money. I thought something like that, like a, a C-tier storyline would have been really cool. And that Wreck-It Ralph would be a great platform for that too, actually. All right, so our last question. I think this is a good opportunity to wrap it up. Uh, hey guys, I'm at a moral crossroads. He's asking me for moral advice. This seems like a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, I walked into a GameStop last Friday and lo and behold, I got the last NES. I've never played the Earthbound game, so I was hoping to trade with someone who really wanted a NES. But I don't know what to do. Should I seek a trade or should I keep my NES and use it as an excuse to buy Earthbound and to fall in love with the series? If you favor the last option, then what makes Earthbound so great as to transcend uh, its somewhat difficult and dated mechanics? I answered the last two questions first. Ben, do you want to tackle this one? I'll just say, even though it's, it's you know, an old 2D game with, you know, kind of cheesy graphics and cheesy dialogue and everything and, you know, maybe slightly dated the mechanics. The cheesy graphics and dialogue are what make that part of it great. Well, I, I was just going to say, when, when I play Earthbound, it's one of the most immersive video game experiences there is. Like, I just, you know, I love the characters, I love the adventure, I love all the, the comedy, but also the, you know, the dark, twisted parts of the story. It just, it hits on so many levels, and it does so many things so very well. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of the... We've, we said before on the show, you know, the minute-to-minute the gameplay can get kind of, not necessarily boring, but RPG-ish. just kind of tedious. 
Yeah. And especially in Earthbound Beginnings, the, you know, the you just have to grind so much in that. But, you know, what what th- they do really write is yes, that immersion is yes, the fun dialogue, uh, but also the message I think of those games and the way that they really stick with the player emotionally. Um, and I think those are the kinds of things that that really make Earthbound what it is, that really make it so special. So, even if the the minute to minute action of the gameplay is not terribly exciting for you. The, the point of Earthbound isn't just those kinds of mechanics being modern and, and, and fun and exciting. Uh, a lot of the point of Earthbound is, is to tell that story, is to convey those experiences and that meaning uh, into the player. And so I think, I think that's what makes it worth getting through, you know, if you don't enjoy the, the minute-to-minute gameplay, then I think that's what makes, makes it worth getting through. And even just like the the regular, you know, stale old RPG mechanics, they they still find ways to spice them yeah. up. We've talked about this on the podcast before. How you know you you catch a cold, you know, in battle, or you miss your mom. Like you have all these like weird zany things that aren't in normal. Those are RPGs. more, I think, narrative because you know they're they're telling the story of like a young boy. Right, but I mean they they tie that narrative into into oh, the gameplay. Oh, absolutely, mechanics, yeah. Is what I'm saying, oh, no, know? for sure. That they, is what Earthbound they, does. They really take really that well. generic RPG gameplay style and they find ways to freshen right. it up. Right, but uh, what I was. What I was thinking you were getting at there was, um, you know, the actual, the gameplay mechanics, not just uh, the, the, the names for traditional mechanics, but the mechanics that Earthbound has that others don't. Like, for example, uh, the rolling uh, health bar, where if you take, you mm-hmm. know, if you take fatal damage, it takes a while for that damage to whittle down. You know, it, it rolls like sort of a slot machine. And so if you take 300 damage and it's, it's, it's rolling down fast, but you still kill the boss before that falling number hits zero, even if you've taken the fatal damage, you'll still win the battle. There's, there, there are little mechanics like that, that that make it interesting and unique, and other games haven't done them even to this day. So, Getting back to the moral conundrum, though, I think, mm-hmm. I think it's kind of beautiful, actually, that you would buy a rare amiibo with the intention not of selling it, but of trading it for a rare amiibo that you would like. And I think that kind of gets to the spirit of what Amiibo should be about, which is not just, you know, buying up all of them, you know, so you can sell them, but but finding ways to connect with people and with the Amiibo that, that you all are attached to, and that's something that we don't haven't really seen so far, and so I'm glad that, that that's something that you feel is important, that it's important for people to, to have the Amiibo that they really want. Um, Alex? Yeah? What if I'm attached to all of them? Um... <laughs> Do they talk to you? Do they have voices? They talk to me. <laughs> oh no. Um also, uh don't expect your Ness Amiibo to be used in any actual Earthbound games. So You uh, just love ripping my heart out today, don't you? Well no, I'm I just want to feel didn't... better about about not not really feeling like you should keep his Ness Amiibo. But play Earthbound anyway. I should play Earthbound anyway. I've bought it. Uh you guys keep telling me it's great. It um, is. I need to stop playing games like Bioshock. I still I guess, stand by though that Earthbound. you should play Mother Three more or first or whatever. I don't know. Nope, Earthbound first. Don't, don't listen I to Colin. He's the false prophet. Don't, don't listen to McIsaac's lies. Just saying. <laughs> just saying. I'm Bosch von Ronsenberg of Dalmasca. Um. Okay. Yeah. I'll do that at some point. Mm-hmm. Will you? <laughs> yeah, I feel like I have to start with Earthbound Beginnings, but what you guys say about the random battles just like 
blows my mind. And the broken level up. Well, Earthbound yeah. Beginnings, you know, it's good for a lot of the same reasons Earthbound is. Uh, it's not necessary to play before Earthbound, though. All The only story connection it has is uh, the final boss. And I think... Oh, but there's a there's Ninten, a Ninten is like but... Ness's great grandpa or something like that too. I guess technically, I I could be totally wrong about that. But yeah, you know, the, well, the story connections don't really affect Earthbound's story at all. It's just kind of like neat ties. It's like Easter eggs. I see. Although, wouldn't it be funny if if Ninten was actually his dad, and that's who he keeps calling it anyway? Well, that's possible. I think I think the games are only supposed to take place one generation apart. That could be it. That'd be really funny, too, because Ninten also is always calling his dad. But yeah, I, I almost feel like there's there's more value to going back and playing Earthbound Beginnings after you've played Earthbound. Like, you'll notice the yeah. connections more. Yeah. Oh. That's certainly what I felt. I guess that makes sense. Now, granted, I couldn't play Earthbound Beginnings before Earthbound, so, you know, who knows? I don't know if the other way around is... Well, I mean, there's something to be said for that, because I think, you know, for example, um, a game like Ocarina of Time or Skyward Sword, which is chronologically before uh a link to the past and ocarina of time respectively you don't really get the full impact if you hadn't played the the game it's sort of responding to first yeah and i know with earthbound beginnings and earthbound it's kind of flipped but given the way nintendo's marketed the two and well that's the thing yeah i mean i don't i think that earthbound beginnings worked being marketed that way for a reason because it really yeah even though it was made before just its structure and and the the story ties themselves work very much as if it were made to be a prequel. Right. Even though the opposite is true. Yeah, and I can't imagine they would have actually marketed it quite the way they did had it not actually worked. Yeah, um, yeah. They couldn't they, have called it Beginnings. They could have... They would have kept whatever the original title is. Earthbound I Zero, they could have just said. Yeah. Um, interesting. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll, I'll try that and see if that works better for me. Yeah, cool. Well, uh, I believe this wraps it up so everybody thank you so much for listening this is the endo nintendo week for today if you like this podcast please subscribe to us on itunes or subscribe to us on youtube at gamnesia tv for bite-sized discussions from the show and please head to itunes to leave us a review it really helps with visibility so we greatly appreciate it especially if you have good things to say instead of bad ones if you have feedback for nintendo week please send it to colin at gamnesia.com and remember to send in your questions about nintendo about our show we love engaging with you guys, and we read them and talk about them here on the show, like we just did. So it's a great way to get involved. Again, that's Colin at Gamnesia.com, C-O-L-I-N at G-A-M-N-E-S-I-A.com. If you can't wait till next week for more of our stuff, you can head to Gamnesia.com to see more gaming news as it happens. We've got Sony, Microsoft, Indie, you name it, and so much Nintendo news that we still didn't have the time to discuss on this week's show. But anyway, thank you so much for listening, and we hope you have another great week.
for the end of week of July 31st. Bleh. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the end of week. Nope. It's thoughtful and product. Fresh kid quit. Fresh kid. Fresh kid. Uh, Sakurai also re recently. Re Sakurai also recently revealed. Jesus, I am terrible tonight.